Welcome to episode 54 of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, The Father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, a.k.a. Matt Rawlings, and I am joined, as always, by your trusty co-host, Jackson the Son, excited to talk about the one where a bunch of yuppies and their demon dog make life very hard for poor Michael Berryman. Oh, all right. We are a spoiler podcast. We do spoil the movies we discuss, and today we are looking at Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes from 1977. What began as a vacation ended as a nightmare. The hills have eyes. That was a bad mistake. The hills have eyes. The story of an American family who lost everything except the will to survive. The hills have eyes. So, in order to do this right, we needed a follicle-challenged man with, according to Daryl Taylor, no job, who lives in the South and therefore understands this movie well. We needed Gilman Joel Robertson. How are you, sir? I am here. Yes, follicle-challenged. I I like to say I beat male pattern baldness before it beat me. Matt, that's what I like to say. I, uh, however, uh, before we get into the Hills Have Eyes, because it wouldn't be me on your show if I didn't immediately take us down some rabbit trail that had nothing to do with the subject at hand. Uh, I will say, I watched The Burning. You did? I watched The Burning, and I did it because I knew your episode was dropping. And I was like, 40, okay. I- okay, so 39 years after a Tom Savini makeup effect slasher drops. Yep, yes, I finally <laughs> saw it. Yes, correct. And I'm noticing I'm on a run with those because I hadn't seen Maniac either. I hadn't seen Maniac up until the uh, New York episode. I never saw it. And uh, and ultimately, I felt I felt very much about it as you two did when I listened to your episode. But that aside, The Burning, uh, I did watch it. Uh, I did listen to your episode. I will tell you, it was not cocaine <laughs> that caused the male pattern baldness. It. I, I may have had an ad- uh, addiction to pixie sticks at some point. I, I can either <laughs> confirm nor deny that, uh, which is a bear to snort. Uh, let me just tell you. Uh, but that aside, uh, yes, no, no cocaine. And, and no, I am not some secret, uh, per, you know, like it turns out my real identity is like, you know, Frank Spielberg and I'm like his brother or something. And uh, no, no, none of that. I never went that far. My biggest claim to movie fame is that I had a short film included on Fangoria's uh, Blood Drive DVD. Oh, nice. Yeah, and and I got to see it in a blockbuster, and I got my literally just my name in one issue of Fangoria, and it was the one with Salem's Lot when they did the remake on the cover. And I and I literally turned my eyes and said, "Okay, I'm good now. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I'm I like I I really have no more ambition. That's that was the limit of my oh. movie making ambition. I was good. Well, but I. As much crap as I've given you, and I'm just following Peter and Daryl on that, but um, <laughs> on Retro Movie Geek. But um, you're actually in good shape. Your wife is in great shape. She has a podcast you never talk about. You need to talk about it. Well, I know. I just got to feel like it's a weird, like, no, you need to talk about it. This is a great podcast. No, I don't say I don't think her podcast is weird. I think I'm weird. And therefore, it would be weird for me. <laughs> but yeah, that's a good point, uh, especially since I produce it with her and everything. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's called Half, it's called Half Size Me. She's been hosting it since 2012. And um, it's the amazing. Long, 
Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And, and she does as well. She appreciates that. I, I could speak for her on that. We've been together since 1993. So uh, wow. we finished each other's sentences a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah. It, she, the long story short is my wife lost 170 pounds over about a five year period while having three, three children in the midst of all of that and everything else. And uh, yeah, so we've been very fortunate and um, it's grown and we've been able to build a business and she coaches and we have like a community of people that we are able to help. And it's awesome. Amazing. So, yep. I, I subscribe. Um, I got into fitness late in my life. And so, but it's, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Everybody well, needs to subscribe to it. Well, thank you very much. And yeah, and I, 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 uh, I, w- I played football in high school and then, uh, after I left high school, I didn't play football anymore, but I kept eating like I, I did. And so <laughs> I ended up popping out around 300 ish. Uh, and so I, I ended wow. up. Wow. And now you're what? Because you are not that now. No, so I, I'm, I'm, I've the lowest I got down to was like 198, but then on wow. me, I was like, yeah, now nah, I need to put a few more pounds on. So I'm probably in like the 215 ish range now. I think 215 to 2. 210 to 220. You're 6'1". 6'1"-ish. Six six yeah, okay. about 6'1". I'm, I'm not Peter Tall, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just like a hair over well, six feet. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a freak. But yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're in great shape. Your wife's in great shape. And so they need to check that out. And so, you know, I like I said, I got into fitness late in my life. It was 2014 after a bunch of health scares and um, then I got into fitness and so, yeah, it's, I've listened to your wife's podcast. It's very well done. People need to check it out. Well, thank you very much. I'll, I show, she'll be really happy to hear that. Absolutely. So we are recording on the eve of Joe Bob Briggs summer sleepover episode on Shudder. And according to one of our former guests, Dave Becker, who's been on a couple of three of our episodes, Joel, you're in possession of the coveted silver bowler award. Uh, I am. Yes, I, I have it. They I, I do, It was really weird because I didn't know that I'm assuming Josh gave them the address because we have a, uh, a you know box to send stuff for different things. And and so he gave that address, apparently, because one day I went to go check the box and is like, uh, what is this? And I opened up I'm like, oh, my. Uh. So I have thought, I actually jumped to the conclusion. I was like, oh, cool. We're <laughs> each going to get one. And then I was like, I like Josh, no. He's like, no, I think there's just one. And I was like, oh. And I'm like reluctantly thinking, okay, I'll send it to you guys. Fine. Maybe we can like share custody or something. But they were both insanely generous. And they're like, nah, nah, you keep it. So uh, I, I, I don't want to say what I'm planning, but I am planning on something related to that for them. But since it's oh. theoretically possible they could listen to this episode, I won't uh, go into it. Oh, we could talk about it off, off uh, air. But, but yes, I am actually looking at it right now. It's. It's sitting up there, uh, uh, surrounded by other horror memorabilia, and uh, mm, and, and you're so jealous. Well, thank you. You'll be happy to know, Jackson, that the bolo I, I am really sure is actually spray painted. Like I don't, <laughs> there's, there's nothing real sober about that thing. And and honestly, it it sounds like I'm just being facetious, but I mean this. I would have been so disappointed had it been like this really nice, you know, like. <laughs> encased something like that. Nope. It came in like a, like kind of like one of those uh, cheap watch boxes. You'd get like the dollar store. And it's like, <laughs> it's like just <laughs> a polo that's been spray painted silver. I'm like, that is awesome. It also came with like a certificate that both uh, Joe Bob and Darcy signed. So pretty nice. awesome. Yep. It, and did it come with a six pack of Lone Star beer? No, did not come with that. <laughs> oh, oh, 
Now, oh, that would have been funny had there been an empty can of it in the box. That would have been funny, but they didn't. That, that. would have been fantastic. Absolutely. So, <laughs> all right. So, Joe, when did you first see The Hills Have Eyes? Okay. I had to be around, I'm guessing, 14-ish because mm-hmm. in like eighth grade is when I really started going like, whole hog and, and horror and like would go to the local video store and they had like the 99 cent rentals on Wednesdays and I would like five movies. And when, you know, other kids, their teenagers want to go out and party like on a Friday night, I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm just going to stay up till three o'clock in the morning and watch, you know, basket case two. So, uh, I, I definitely would have seen this around that time. And I had already was aware of it because my dad had told me about it. And uh, maybe we could get into this a little later, but uh, I'm I'm assuming you guys are familiar with the legend that it's based on. Yes, Sonny yeah. Bean. Yeah, yes, the Sonny Bean. Okay, I, I wasn't sure uh, how much you want to go into that, but I was aware of that as well. So, like, my dad had told me about the legend of Sonny Bean, and you know, we're Ro- Robertson, so the whole Scottish thing. And uh, so he had told me about that, and then he's like, "Oh yeah, there's this movie," and he's telling me about it. And, and as a kid, I don't think I had put two and two together that it was a Wes Craven movie until I saw it. But to say that I loved it would be an understatement because I know I've said on H&B before, probably one of my least favorite subgenres are cannibal movies, you know, like as in, like the cannibal Holocaust types. But yeah. this cannibal movie, it's one of my all time favorites. I love this movie. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jackson, what about you? OK, let me set the scene. It was November of 2018, right? Uh, I was watching Dinners of Death, the Joe Bob live stream. And uh, Hills Have Eyes is announced as the second movie. I had never seen it all the way through before. I'm ashamed oh, to admit, wow. I had never seen it all the way through before. Uh, I was the only one awake in the house. It was late at night, and uh, I was watching it on my phone while sitting on the living room floor to be close to the internet router. All right, And even though this is obviously not the ideal way to watch a movie, I was fully invested uh, though that may be due in part to my infatuation with a young D. Wallace. Um, but anyways, oh yeah, I loved the movie first time I saw it, though I don't think I appreciated it fully until these last two viewings, uh, one of which with you, and then I, I watched it this week as well to prepare and do notes. But uh, or actually, I watched it twice, and we'll talk about that. But uh, yeah, so I've seen this movie three, three times in the last month, and uh, my appreciation has only grown every time. Yeah, I saw it on VHS back in the mid-80s. There was a local mom-and-pop shop close to me that I would ride my BMX bike to when I was a teenager. And there was one person, one woman, who I had a crush on, um, who would rent me anything I wanted. And this was one of them. And I rented it solely based on the box cover and fell in love with it. The IMDb synopsis reads... On the way to California, a family has the misfortune to have their car break down in an area closed to the public. I'm not so sure that's right. And inhabited by violent savages ready to attack. Well, that may be the most vanilla synopsis possible, but um, at least I think somebody IMDb actually watched the movie. Um, So uh, let's talk about the plot and the screenplay. Wes Craven wrote it. He had been in limbo, according to him, since the last house on the left, because his phone had exactly rang off the hook after he had done last house on the left. Producer Peter Locke um, had a wife who was performing in Vegas, doing comedy in Vegas, which Wes Craven was writing jokes for. 
He thought he could come up with $250,000 if they could do it. So they go out and do it after Wes Craven goes to the New York City Public Library. What up, Daryl? And found the legend of Sonny Bean, um, who some allege never existed, but according to the legend was a family of 45 who was living in a cave who killed and cannibalized more than 1,000 people, though some say 5,500 people. That's the plot. Joel, do you buy it? That Saudi Bean existed or that that's the plot? Both. <laughs> okay, but yes, I buy that that's the, basically the plot. Uh, but Saudi Bean, I always thought existed. I, I took completely took it for granted. I was actually, in preparation for this, was trying to refresh my memory. Mm-hmm. It's been a very long time since I looked up anything about Saudi Bean. Uh, a, I guess it's one of those... It feels like a very early urban legend. Like it has that, like, I'm sure there's a grain of truth in there somewhere, but there's very little proof. I would love if somebody did like a documentary series where they would go to the location and maybe can they find any actual archaeological type evidence that there was at least people living in that cave system. Right. If you really want to get creeped out, I did find a video on YouTube called Sonny Beans Cave, and it's just... It's just like somebody's home movie where they went to the location and they've got footage, but they've got this creepy wow. music. It's like 19 minutes long. I've only watched a few minutes of it. I haven't gotten to go through the whole thing yet, but it's pretty creepy because you can see this cave and it's like this slit in the rocks. And you can, it looks like what they talk about, like the, the tide would go up. You couldn't get to it. Like it fits all their criteria for what is described for him. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I lean towards it probably was an early, kind of what we now would call an urban legend. Yeah. And I think you know th- there was an argument, I guess, that it was meant to be propaganda to put down the Scots because the at the time that the strike started to really uh, come to the fore, there was a, a big movement with the British, I guess the, I don't know, I, I obviously I'm not going to show my wonderful uh, United States education, <laughs> <laughs> what I know about British history. But I will say that for what I understood is that there was a, a move at that time to uh, really make the, the Scots seem like lesser than, and that a lot of people argued, okay, this was just a, pro- a pu- propaganda piece done by the British or the English specifically. And the, uh, the thing is apparently guess the word, the name Sawney, is actually yeah. at the time like, apparently not anymore. It's completely obsolete. Is this? But at the time, it was meant to be, I guess, more of a disparaging name. It was like they said it was like calling oh. somebody from Ireland Patty, you know, like that kind of thing. So, uh, and so that's why people have made the assumption that maybe. But I guess then something else I read said that the book that when it, that had a lot of this stuff about Sonny Bean, this would have been around the 1700s, I guess, like somewhere in the 1700s, mm-hmm. that they also had things in there that were disparaging about English legends and folklore and stories so someone made a good point if that was their attempt at propaganda it wasn't very good <laughs> because you know usually in propaganda you don't go out of your way to go oh but we're awful too so you know <laughs> you, you don't usually do that but uh, if you get a chance to check it out sonny beans cave on youtube it's uh pretty creepy no oh, i will definitely check that out jackson what about you uh i don't know i want to believe i want to <laughs> believe that sonny bean existed you have wanna- you have you have the David Duchovny thing going on. That's yep. exactly what it is. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Without the missing sister and whatnot. But uh, but yeah, I definitely want to believe that Sonny Bean existed. And I'm sure that there were stories of, obviously this happened all the time, I'm sure, people hijacking uh, those old highways, I guess you could call them, and, and 
cannibalizing people, but I don't know that there was a family of 45 inbred cannibals in a cave. Uh, that just seems a little far-fetched, though obviously, like Joel was saying, there's there's always a grain of truth to every urban legend. You know how you know you're with kindred spirits? <laughs> when you say a family of 45 inbred cannibals, <laughs> thousands of people, and that you want it to be true, and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know you're with kindred yes. spirits. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Oh, man. I look, uh, I remember traveling across the country um, in the 80s twice as a teen with a triple A triptych. And it was more than a little frightening. So I get it. And also, the Hills Have Eyes is post deliverance, right? Um, so. Joel, you are, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus like you do to Peter every week, but um, <laughs> are you old enough to remember the pre-GPS days yes. and the yes. stress? Yeah, I, well, I do, I'm old enough to remember them, but observing the stress of my parents. So I, re I remember the triptych. Uh, I remember paper maps. I, I, re I was never, my parents were never foolhardy enough to actually hand it to me and say, hey, hey, son, navigate. That would have been a really big mistake. Um, it's probably a borderline mistake with actual modern GPS to ask me to navigate. But uh, I do remember it very well. I, and uh, there, there, I even get a little nostalgic when I, I, I still, I don't know if you've noted, I don't know if it's this way in your area, but I'll go into a grocery store or whatever. They still have paper maps. I mean, they're yeah. still I'm like, wow, that's cool and quaint. And yeah. A little nostalgia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jackson, have you ever used a paper map? Uh, yeah, for hiking, never for driving. Uh, but I, I'll, I'll do you guys one better. I don't remember a time when iPhones weren't around. So I, not even GPSs, wow. just iPhones. Well, since I, first... think, I think I just threw my back out, Jackson. Give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've only ever used a, a physical map for like hiking or like, I guess, like the subway. I don't I don't think many people these days, even if they were alive uh, during the time of physical maps, would ever prefer to use physical maps just because, like you said, it's stressful. You have to constantly be tr keeping track of where you are. And when technology does that for you, you're like, oh, great. It's one less thing I have to worry about. Up until the moment where technology gets wiped out by whatever. And then you know, everyone's going to stand in there with these little bricks that do nothing. And there's going to be the, the wind's going to blow a la the opening of day of the dead. And there's going to be this map that's going to go by. And people are just going to stare <laughs> at it, have no idea what to do. And then the rest of us that are old will be like, <laughs> and we'll just pick up the map and we'll just be very annoyed and have, you know, heart failure yes. because frustrated by the map. Yes, absolutely. And my, uh, God bless her. My wife has had that moment where she's like, when she was in New York City um, back in, I think this was uh, 2009, 2010, she was in New York City and she got on a train. She misread it. She ended up at the back end of nowhere and she's wandering through Brooklyn at night. No idea where she's at. And that I still think is terrifying. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I having uh, had my experience in New York, I think just it being anywhere like at night, having no idea where you're at, uh, that would be pretty intense. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, uh, man, 
so let's get back into the plot of this. We have Bobby. And Bobby, by the way, went on to be uh, like an Oscar-nominated documentary filmmaker. Uh, never an Oscar nomination for acting, for obvious reasons. But um, he refuses to speak about the death of beauty. Can anybody explain that to me? I have a theory. But Jackson, right, uh, Jackson, if you have one, I'll, I, I will give the floor to you. But I have a theory. Nothing. I'm all ears. All right. First off, am I the only one who thinks he looks like Mark Hamill? Yes, I said that to my dad, and he didn't see it. Oh, you kidding me, dude? It's totally it's Luke Skywalker. Like it's. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see it. Yeah, I. Yeah. I was. Yeah, I was getting ready for him to just start whining about going into Bachi Station to pick up some power converters. I was yes. waiting, waiting for it. Yes. I was waiting for it. Uh, and the same year. So there you go. Uh, it was actually. There's also a part of me that wonders, like, did he actually maybe audition for? I don't know. Who knows? Maybe everybody um, may have. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So here's my theory, because. My my wife and I were actually talking about this because she she actually likes this movie quite a bit too. And she was she didn't get it. And I said, okay, it's 1977, right? We've got this very kind of traditional old school family. You know, I was doing the math. The parents are celebrating their 25th anniversary, which means kids uh, doing the math at home. They were married in 1952. My mom was like one year old. <laughs> and those people were yes. married. Yes. So so when you consider the context of the time and the whole like, I'm going to put you in charge, son, sort of attitude of the dad and you know, he's a cop and all this stuff. I think that it was very much meant to be. It, I'm sure it would be looked at a lot of people as like a sexist way of being. But I think it was meant to be a I'm going to protect my mom and sisters from being terrified. So I'm going to internalize. I'm going to I'm going to compartmentalize this pain until I can figure out what to do until, you know, Doug gets back and I can have a man-to-man talk. I, I think it was grounded in that idea more than it was just, hey, dude, why don't you just tell everybody the dog's dead so they can be prepared for what's about to come? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, so that's yeah. how I took it. I took it as he was high. He, it, it's, it, it was a intention <laughs> grounded in the time that was he meant well, but it did not behoove him or his family to do that. Oh boy. Jackson, what do you say? Well, I, all I have to say is I'm grateful that it was him and not Brenda, because if Brenda had found beauty, she'd be like, ah, 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 and she'd just be <laughs> screaming for like 45 minutes about that. That's, that's we talked cool. about her screams. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most annoying shrill scream. <laughs> I would say in all of 70 cinema, <laughs> Like, come on, Brenda, chill out. Yeah, I, although I will give her a pass because I'm pretty that whole I, I know we'll get to it, but that whole attack on the RV uh, is is really the moment where it goes from being a kind of just, you know, I mean, it's it's a it's got its moments and it's a little intense. And obviously the suspense is building and we've gotten a little bit of gore. But like when it gets to that, I, I accept her screaming there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but yeah, it, it gets shrill. It gets shrill. Yeah, it gets shrill. But yeah, I agree with you. It's just, it's too much. And Wes Craven admitted in the commentary track that I watched, that it was like he became a little too enamored with it. And and uh, so, yeah, it got to the point where it was a little annoying. Um, even though I'm not, I'm not dogging her performance because she she's done some great stuff in this. I'm I'm really a fan of hers. I mean, um, she did a thing where, okay, now I, I, I've said this before. I am not a fan 
of sexual assault. I mean, that is the one thing where I check out. I mean, I, I can't, um, you know, spit up on your grave. I can't, I just can't. Um, and when Michael Berryman is raping her character, she decided to make it light. And so when they pulled the film away and they were filming it, her and Michael Berryman were making out uh, like full bore. And she was like, just for a joke to try to lighten everything up because everybody was so tense about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that works, but, oh man, this is, that's the scene in the, whatever you want to call it, the camper or whatever. Yeah. That man, that's intense. That's really raw. Yeah. Yeah. You could see that this is from the director of last house of the left. Yeah. And that's Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, oh, it's, it's flinch-inducing. Jackson, what did you think? Uh, of of the, the scene in the camper or of... Yes, the okay. scene in the camper. Great scene, really terrifying. I will agree with you there. It does feel like classic Craven, Last House on the Left. Uh, you can see it there more than anywhere else in the movie because, honestly, I think... Uh, that the rest of the movie in tone is closer to something like Nightmare than something like Last House on the Left. Uh, however, uh, that that scene was very terrifying. And I just want to say really quick, uh, if you thought her shrill screams, uh, Brenda's screams are really bad, you should listen because she she was a musical artist. Uh, mm-hmm. She did a song with Michael Berryman called Watch oh. What You Ask For. And let me just say, no no diss on, on uh, the actress, but... Uh, it's not what I would say is Grammy material. Uh, <laughs> so I think we should just be happy that she didn't sing in the climax of this movie. Well, yeah. But, okay, so let's go to the villains in this movie. Uh, James, Whit- uh, James Whitmore, who played Papa Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Um, and Michael Berryman, who played Pluto. Wes Craven went out of his way in the commentary to say, they were the two sweetest people in the movie (laughs) that they were just, they were dolls. It was like, they were incredible to work with. Yeah. And I, I have a Michael Berryman story by way of a good friend of mine, uh, Tyson Hanks. He's been on retro movie geek a couple of times. He's a, he's a horror author. And he, there was a small con, uh, in the Orlando area. I think it's called, uh, phantasm. I think it was phantasm that he was Mm -hmm. at. And it's, it's, it's a, it was, this would have been obviously pre COVID. I want to say it was in 2019 and Berryman was there and Tyson was there selling his book and he went downstairs to get a fork for lunch or something. And there's Michael Berryman sitting by himself at a table yeah. eating lunch. And he just walked up and he just wanted to be like, Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm going to leave you alone, but I, I love you. I love your work, blah, blah, blah. And Berryman's like, sit down, bud. Like he said, he tells him to sit oh, down, yeah. they have a conversation, just sweetest guy and and i have never heard anybody say anything to the contrary about the man he seems like he's just awesome no and and in the commentary on the hills have eyes wes craven and and the producer peter lott go on and on that that he was just he was a trooper he was just amazing and i had that experience when i was in hollywood i remember driving down sunset strip and um i had this chevy rv it still had Ohio plates on it. And somebody behind me was honking their horn. 
And I'm like, what in the world's going on? And I looked. So I pulled into, I was working at the 9,000 building on the Sunset Strip. I pulled into a Rainbow Bar and Grill parking lot. And the guy who steps out is Clancy Brown. Oh, yes. Who's been in, if you don't yes. know who that is, he's been in Highlander. He's the heavy in a lot of movies. Uh, Pet Cemetery 2. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> SpongeBob. That's what I know him from. Yes, he's in in SpongeBob. And so Clancy Brown gets out and he goes, Hey, where in Ohio are you from? And I said, Well, I'm from Portsmouth. He goes, Where's that? And I describe it to him. He's like, Oh man, yeah, I'm from I'm from Ohio. My my dad was a congressman from Ohio. And I'm like, Yeah. So we just started talking. And Clancy Brown was like the sweetest guy on the face of the planet. <laughs> so did, at the time, did you put two and two together of who he was? Yeah, because I'd seen Highlander. I'd okay. seen Blue okay. Steel. I'd seen all that kind of stuff. But he's just like, and he's just talking to me. And he's just like the absolute nicest guy on the face of the world. That's awesome. I love stories like that. Absolutely. And he's just like, yeah, my dad, you know, Bud Brown was a congressman from Ohio. He started a newspaper and all this kind of stuff. I was like, yeah, I know, you know, because I, I, you know, and, and so we're just sitting there talking and he, he's just a great guy. Yeah, that's cool. And it's the same thing I've heard over and over again about Michael Berryman. Also, James Whitmore, who played Papa Jupe. I yes. mean, they're going on and on in the commentary. I never met him, but, you know, Wes Craven and, and the producer are like James Whitmore was like the greatest guy in the world. I noticed in the trivia, I think it said he sort of he retired abruptly in the mid 80s from acting and then he passed away in 91. Is that yeah, he yeah. did. And he's like he was a huge guy, like six foot five, you know, 300 pounds. And he'd been on the Rockford Files and all that other kind of stuff. He'd done a lot of exploitation movies. But everybody who talked about him was like he was the nicest guy in the world. And, and Wes Craven in the I, I don't know if you remember this, Jackson, we were watching the commentary. Uh, on the hills have eyes like James Whitmore who played Papa Jupiter and Michael Berryman who played Pluto they went to Wes Craven and said now you're not going to kill that baby right yeah <laughs> they were going to have a walk off on set if the yeah baby they were going to walk off the set if he killed the baby yeah and I think that to that point that is one of the genius moves by Craven is to have to have made a movie like Last House on the Left which is just brutal it i mean back to your point oh, yeah. matt about you know movies that deal with that kind of material i have a very hard time with as well and i honestly attribute it to seeing both last house of the left and i spit at your grave when i was way too young i should i was probably you know 15 ish that time period and it like traumatized me i both of those movies did i feel okay. though of the two last house i i can I don't know. I guess I make more excuses for it's <laughs> really what it comes down to. Uh, but uh, I mean, it was based on Virgin Spring and blah, blah, blah. But it's right. still a brutal, ugly movie that it's not like, you know, you're just like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm bored. Let me pop this in. Um, but because he, that's what he had to his name. And then he does this movie and the subject matter with dealing with like cannibals and this and, you know, the whole killing of the bird and all this stuff. I, I think that having that baby there just just it, it's every scene is immediately heightened by a hundred percent in suspense because there's a part of you going dude is he they're not going to do what i think they're going to do right? right like they're not going to actually do what right. i think they're going to do well yeah and it's oh man it's and 
watching the commentary today with the producer, you know, and Wes Craven, they kept talking about how they had to cut things and cut things and cut things and, and, and to get an R rating because initially they got an X rating. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, Wes was always like, you know, I, I, I didn't really intend it to be this far out movie. I didn't intend, you know, uh, Last House on the Left to be that. And he was like, if you watch Last House on the Left, um, after the murder of the girls, David Hess's character, who, by the way, is was, you know, by all accounts, Greg Morgan has told me this several times. He was a really sweet guy. Wes Craven intentionally, like, shot, you know, that footage where they're like, what did I do? They, they yeah. have that, like, regret in their yes. face. Yes, which makes it so much worse. Like it, it's all it's horrible and awful, but it's like as soon as you make it to where people who just did what they did are shown yeah. as actual people, you're yeah. like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> this is oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah, because you have that after you know the girls have died, like David Hess and and all of them, and they did that in the remake as well. They're just looking around at each other like, oh, what have we done? Yeah, yeah this yeah. is disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 rough, and, and it's funny because Hills Have Eyes, you know, rewatching it, I hadn't seen it in a while. I uh, full disclosure, I know we'll do the uh, ratings and all that kind of stuff at the end, and whether people should own it. I owned it for years and years and years. I honestly, you know, moved a couple times. I don't know what happened to it. I see that Arrow has a version. I was actually uh, looking at it earlier, so that's the one I'm going to end up buying. But, um, I, I, I guess what when I think about this movie, though, and even that scene is as brutal as it feels. It's it's bloody. It's a little bloody, you know, but it's not. Oh, yeah. And I really and I, I know we got to consider the time period, 1977. But, you know, I don't know. I kind of think that X rating for it. I, I don't know. I, I'm a little kind of surprised that that's what it was, um, other than maybe just because of how bleak it is. And, and that's sort of how it it takes this idea. I mean, it's pretty obvious if you're remotely paying attention about how, you know, it's this idea of, you know, taking the the civilized against the primitive and just sh- showing how thin that line really is. And, and there, there it's, it's got this very bleak ending. Um, so, I mean, I'm always wondering if that was what it was because I'm sure they made it, it was, Oh, it's because of the assault and the, and the, and the, the violence and it's there. I don't know. I just, I, do you have any theories as to why it's, I, well, yeah, I mean, it was, they resubmitted it uh, apparently several times. Um, I just think that, first of all, Wes Craven has said that one of the reasons he couldn't get a movie made after Last House on the Left was because how brutal Last House on the Left was, you know, received. Mm-hmm. And so I think he, that part of it was that reputation. Yeah. And, and so, you know, because he, you know, then he went, frankly, into porn um, to make a living. Um, mm-hmm. I was going to say, it wasn't the first X-rated movie he had made. Well, no, no, was that before Last House or after? So he did stuff after? I, I always heard he had done stuff with Sean Cunningham before Last House, but it I didn't was really... both. It was before and after. But oh, before gotcha. he was an editor, um, after he was producer, all that kind of stuff. And so um, he was involved in Deep Throat. He did that, all that kind of stuff. But um he still, it, it, it's very interesting. I, I, I really connect with Wes Craven because 
growing up in a fundamentalist Christian household like he did in Ohio, you know, it, I, I really like to listen to him. I understand where he's coming from. Um, but he was really trying with, with the Hills have eyes to try to get an R rating because he had been through everything with the last house on the left where it was originally rated X, all that kind of stuff. He was really trying to get it. Um, he was trying to get a wide, you know, version of it, getting to drive-ins and all that kind of stuff. And he did. I mean, I mean, it was made for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and it made twenty-five million. Yeah, which is not incredible. Bad. Yeah, yeah, not bad at all. And so, you know, he was really trying to shoot for that. He he didn't, you know, obsess over it like Toby Hooper did, but he he really did try to focus on it. So, cause he was really trying to break out and, and the next year he got a TV movie based on it, which, okay. So Joel, you do tear on the tube, which you need mm-hmm. to promote. Mm-hmm. And he did a TV movie in 78 called summer fear with Linda yep. Blair. Yep. And so he got that from this, but he was really trying and Peter Locke, and he were trying to, they told um, on the commentaries, like the first time they submitted their first cut, oh, it was X. And it was not just an X. The censor said, it's a hard X. <laughs> it wasn't like you can cut a few seconds here and there. It was like, oh, no, you're in, you know, you've got to cut a lot. Mm-hmm. And so they went back and really went over it to try to get it out there. And they got the R rating, but as many people have done, um, they went ahead and said, okay, now that we have the R rating, we went ahead and put a bunch of stuff back in it. Like the final scene where Martin Shear is just stabbing Mars over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, that was originally cut, but they went back and said, okay, now that we have an R rating, we, we're going to put it back in. So, can we, uh, I, I don't know how much you want to jump around because I do want to address yeah. that ending. So in preparation for this, now that I obviously rewatched the original, I finally watched the remake, mm-hmm. the uh, 2006 remake. I had not seen it. Um, more or less, not, initially it was because I was just sort of doing the whole indignant, no, don't remake this. I don't want to see it. And then years past, I actually heard it wasn't bad and then I just never got around to it. So figured, hey, perfect timing. The Two movies, the way they end, mm-hmm. and I don't know, you know, I, I know your spoiler podcast, but I, I don't want to necessarily give away the ending to the remake, but it's different. I mean, it, it isn't yeah, the same. In fact, is. I'd argue it's more hopeful. I know that the very last bit is like, oh, you're supposed to be like, it's very much a classic, almost 80s horror stinger where it's like, oh, they, they didn't get rid of them all, you know, that kind of thing. All but right. it still feels a lot more hopeful and like the family get what's left of them comes back together and they're intact. Whereas this movie, <laughs> the the oh. final character, you know, essentially just goes full, just brutal killer. I mean, and he of course was set up as being, I would almost argue the West Craven stand in sort of the, right. you know, the intellectual, you right. know, probably, you know, definitely the politics of him and the, and the father-in-law probably are on opposite ends of the spectrum. I mean, and he's definitely going to be the guy who is probably, you know, attending like, you know, anti-war rallies and stuff. And, and he's definitely not going to be the guy that does what he does. It goes where he goes. 
personally, I love the ending. I think the original Hills Have I, I, I prefer the ending by a lot. I, I agree. Jackson, what about you? Now, I, I, I do prefer the ending of, uh, or the, the theatrical ending. I've never seen the remake, but I do prefer it to the alternate ending of the 77 film, uh, which we watched together, which is the cheesiest yeah. thing I have ever seen. Basically, it's a sitcom ending to The Hills Have Eyes, where they all come together and hug, and Ruby's kind of sitting back there, and she doesn't know if she's going to be part of the group. And right. then they're like, ah, oh, Ruby, come in here. And then, I'm not kidding, it, it Family Matters uh, Full House style flashes through their names as they're on screen smiling. And it's the most cheesy thing I've ever seen in my life. So, yes, I definitely prefer the bleak ending. Uh, though I, I think if I would have seen this in theaters back in 77, I would have been very shocked by it, uh, yeah. because it seems to me like other than the, those, uh, like exploitation films of the seventies, most films tried to wrap it up in a way that made you feel good going out of the theater. Like, Oh, I, I should bring my friends back to see that in the next weekend. Uh, but this movie makes no attempt to do that. <laughs> that is true. That is very true. I, yeah. I, Matt, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong. Cause it's been a really long time. But didn't Last House end that way with like the 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 because I know that that has been done be, with movies that have like a really dark ending sometimes that that was something that was occasionally used where yeah you show each person in like a happier moment they smile and you put their their name across the bottom um, in fact I think and Craven did that to some degree uh, with Scream actually now I'm thinking about it like it ends with each of the characters yeah. so and I did he I feel like he did it with Last House too. Oh, yeah. yeah, he did. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, no, he did. Um, <clears throat> he, Wes Craven, when you listen to interviews with him, he goes back and forth. Um, but here's the problem. And here's what I discovered when I worked in Hollywood. Um, Wes Craven was too nice of a guy. Um, he... Uh, he gave in to producers. He gave in to studio heads. He wasn't John Carpenter. You know, John Carpenter had a steel spine where he was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And he didn't care what, you know, the studio executive said. It didn't matter. John Carpenter was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Um, Wes Craven was too nice. And, that, and that's one of the reasons why Wes Craven's filmography is all over the place. I mean, you look at Nightmare on Elm Street, which is amazing. You look yep. at Scream, which is yep. amazing. Um, but, you know, he's got cursed. Oh, he got cursed. he got bullied by the Weinsteins. Um, you look at Vampire in Brooklyn, where the Weinsteins and Andy Murphy kind of bullied him. Wes Craven... I've ne I never met the man. And, and here's the thing. When I went out to Hollywood, if you would have asked me when I was working in Hollywood, who do you want to meet? I would have said John Carpenter, Wes Craven, Toby Hooper, and I never met any of them. Um, you know, I met Steven Spielberg. You know, I met a lot of great. I met David Lynch. Um, but I never met, met the guys that I really wanted to meet. And unfortunately, a lot of those guys were just too nice. They got bullied by the studios. And Wes Craven really got bullied by the studios. And he was just too nice. And he, 
I remember, you know, watching the Hills Have Eyes um, production stuff, and it didn't surprise me when he said, you know, the producer Peter Locke said, hey, Wes, we have to get coverage. And he's like, what's coverage? (laughs) He didn't know. You know, he just didn't know. He'd never been to film school. He was, you know, he had a master's degree in English from John Hopkins. He didn't know what... You know, he didn't understand, you know, the difference between an establishing shot and a coverage shot. And he just didn't understand it. And and so Wes got kind of bullied in his career by, you know, Robert Shea. He talks about a nightmare in Elm Street where it's like where Nancy's going up the steps with the oatmeal. And he's like, I didn't want that. I thought it was stupid. I thought the, you know, tongue coming out of the phone was stupid. Well, but Robert Shea insisted on it. And West just didn't have the guts to stand up and say, you know, we're not doing that. Yeah. He did. He didn't want it to be Fred in scream. He didn't want to do that. He thought that was stupid. Yeah. But, but, you know, Bob and Harvey Weinstein insisted on it. And so, he just kind of gave in on that stuff. And, and Wes was just too nice of a guy. And Toby Hooper was the same way. I've heard Joe Dante because I listened to Joe Dante's podcast and he talks about how Wes Craven and Toby Hooper deserve better than they got because they were just too nice. Yeah. They, I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to pipe in with, uh, when, uh, about, uh, it's been, 2012, 13, somewhere in that ballpark. I was the year that I went to Spooky Empire in Orlando and got to meet George Romero. So, uh, but also a couple of the members of the cast of the people under the stairs were there. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think it's any secret that I love that movie. And and actually, what's that? As you should. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Uh, And we'll get into, by the way, where I think there are some echoes in this movie of people under the stairs uh, if we have time but uh brandon adams who played fool uh was was that was there and um uh sean whalen roach was there and the guy who i'm actually gonna have to look up his name because i honestly don't even remember how to pronounce it but he was like the he was the guy that i always think of looking at like the sebastian bach from skid row <laughs> person <laughs> under the stairs he was like the main one <laughs> jan oh, birch man. yeah jan birch oh, that was it yeah the stairmaster, and so I, I got the party with Sebastian Bach one night. But oh boy, I bet that's a story. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But he always did. He always reason it looked like Sebastian Bach to me when he comes creeping out the long straight hair. Yes. Anyway, uh, and so he was the stairmaster, is how they list him in the credits. But anyway, they were all there and they did a Q and A. So uh, super super nice guy, especially Brandon. Man, they, they were all great. But yeah, Brandon like went out of his way to to you know make sure we could talk to him and all that kind of stuff. But. Uh, they did uh, the Q and a, and they talked actually specifically kind of like what you're talking about, how mm-hmm. there was, I can't remember what the scene was, but that, uh, the producer showed up on set and Craven actually just went up on the roof of the house. I guess they had it set up a certain way and he was able to like go out onto the, and just laid there until they left. Like let his, yeah. let his, let the, the, out of his executive producers or whatever. And so like his production team just dealt with them. And then he came back when they were done. Like he didn't want to deal with them. Yeah, he was, you know, he was raised in a fundamentalist Christian home and he was just used to kind of rolling over. And that's what he did. And so, 
you know, when you hear Wes Craven talk about like the original Nightmare on Elm Street, which I I, I think is a masterpiece. Yes. But I... the, the few scenes there that I think could have been cut, like the tongue scene and the phone or the oatmeal scene where Nancy's running up the steps. He's like, that wasn't my idea. I didn't want that. But Bob Shea wanted that. And I didn't want to argue with Bob Shea. So we did it. And yeah. that's that's just Wes Craven. I mean, he's just he was too nice of a guy. I mean, he just he had the vision. He's an incredible. I mean, look, for you to go to, I mean, I don't know if people listen. I don't mean to be condescending, but if you go to Wheaton College and then John Hopkins to do a master's degree, you're really smart. That is not an easy thing to do. To get into a master's degree at John Hopkins, you're really sharp, which is what he did. And Wes Craven was a really smart guy who got thrown into a business where there were a lot of alpha males who had no idea what they were doing, like Bob Shea and the Weinsteins. And so he got pushed around a lot. And if he hadn't been pushed around a lot, I think he could be accounted right there with Hitchcock and so forth if they just left him alone. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the movies he took because it just came down to money. And oh, and, yeah. and and like for instance in preparation for this, a movie that I I was sure I had seen, but I was also sure I absolutely hated and am shocked at a how bad it is yet how much I didn't hate it this time around which is The Hills Have Eyes 2. Yeah. <laughs> From 1985. Yeah. I with know dog, I saw that. What's dog, that? With the dog flashback. Know, yeah. You get, flashback. you get, yeah. Beast has a flashback. Yeah. Um, and so I honestly thought I hated that movie. Like I, I, my only, I had this very specific memory and rewatching the movie. That scene didn't even happen. So I'm not sure what I watched <laughs> back in the like early, early eighties, early nineties. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it, uh, but it's not a good movie. It's a bad movie. But there's something about it, and there's elements to it, and it's kind of cool because certain. I, I mean, yeah, Manfredini did the music, so I mean, it's got a lot to recommend for it. But my point is, you could totally tell that's a I need a paycheck <laughs> kind of movie. That's what that Absolutely. was. Well, he started filming it, and then they pulled the funding, and he had to like the he he referenced uh, if you watch the Hills Have Eyes commentary. He talks about, well, you know, Beast has the first dog, you know, yeah. <laughs> reminiscence. Um, and he's laughing while he's doing it. Well, they pulled all his funding from it. He didn't he didn't have any money, you know, and so he had to finish it with no money. But that was Wes Craven. He just got pushed around. And, uh, you know, I've seen this. I, I've seen this in Hollywood. I worked there for three years. You know, look. You know, if you don't have giant gonads to stand up and say, you know what, I'm not doing that. And Wes just didn't have it. You're going to have a lot of crap. There's a reason why we have Vampire in Brooklyn. Um, there's a reason why we have Deadly Friend and all other kind of stuff. It's not that Wes Craven was a bad director. He wasn't. He was a genius director. He was a really good screenwriter. He just wouldn't stand up to studio executives. Yeah. And I, and I think that if you have, if he had had one movie 
that had been great. You could chalk it up to, okay, yeah, that was lightning in a bottle once. Yay. The fact that you could easily say that, you know, at least what, probably pushing half. I mean, I would say half a dozen off the top of my head. Absolutely. Yeah. That are just great. Fantastic. And a few are just absolute classics. I, I mean, if, okay. So there's a lot of, junk in there. I mean, we actually brought up Terror on the Tube. We covered Invitation to Hell uh, yeah. from, uh, from 84 with That's Susan Lucci. Yeah. It is terrible, but my goodness, is it entertaining. I had never seen it before. I agree. Yeah. Jackson, have you seen Invitation to Hell? Never even heard of it. Okay. It is on Prime. It is a Wes Craven written and directed movie <laughs> starring uh, a soap opera star that was way Susan before you. Yeah. Susan Lucci, but she was notorious in my mind because she had apparently been nominated for like 17 Emmys in a row and never won one. <laughs> it was like a big thing. I remember that was always a thing on Emmy time. Um, and it is insane, dude. It is a nutsoid movie. You'll know in the first minute and a half how nuts this movie is. Uh, but there's also still things in it that you could, the, the thing that I, you, you brought all that up, Matt, about like his intelligence and like the fact that, you know, what was his uh, degree in again? What was his? Uh, oh, he, was he a, had a master's degree in English literature from John Hopkins University. Didn't he also teach philosophy too? Was that like a thing? He did. Yeah. So, I mean, and what I love, that's why I love him as a filmmaker, because you could see even in a movie like Invitation to Hell, there's ideas in there. It may not work, but there's like an attempt to do something with it. Like, that was the thing that always stood out to me about Hills Have Eyes was even yeah. when I was young like that. And I, and I remember reading a couple articles that somebody had written about it. And when I, when I really saw that parallel of the two families and, you know, the fact that even just the little things like Brenda and Bobby beauty and beast, like there's yeah. all of these parallels and symbols. And like, if you want to look for it, it's there. So I really appreciate that about him as a filmmaker. Yeah, he's, uh, look, I mean, he was amazing. I, uh, when I moved out to L.A. in 1988, first time I was in L.A. was 1986 when my brother moved out there, and then I moved out on my own in 1988. And all the people I wanted to meet, I didn't meet. <laughs> I, I wanted to meet Wes Craven. I wanted to meet John Carpenter. It didn't happen. Um, but I did encounter people who worked with them. And I never met anyone who worked with Wes Craven who didn't just like sing his praises. And, and this was not somebody I met, but I was watching a documentary, um, David Arquette, who was on Eli Ross history of horror. Um, he talked about how he loved meeting Wes Craven. He said, but he said, you know, Wes as, Great as a guy as he was, you know, as smart as he was, David Arquette said he when he shot his first first scene in Scream. So he did it. And he said, Wes Craven looked at him and said, well, that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that again, shall we? <laughs> uh, are, are you taking notes, Jackson? So that's how you deal with actors. You tell them right at the bat, you're te- that was terrible. <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah, and he was—he wasn't afraid to push actors around because they're actors. I mean, they're the jokes of Hollywood, right? But then you got the producers with the big bucks, and you're like, "Ooh, I don't know about that." Well, yeah, but you have to be able to push back on that. Okay, so the first um, film set I remember being on was Back to the Future Two. Uh, it was 1988. 
um, it was at Universal. It was late at night. And the reason I was on the set was my buddy Brad Schmidt, his girlfriend was the head of marketing for Pizza Hut. And if you remember Back to the Future 2, what are they, you know, what are they making in the dehydrator? Oh, that's right. Yep. It's Pizza Hut. Right. Yep. So, yep. so I was on the set and I was watching it and Christopher Lloyd's there and, and Michael J. Fox there and they have the DeLorean on the cables and all that kind of stuff. I was watching Robert Zemeckis and it was the first set I was on. I was really watching Robert Zemeckis because I, I wanted to be a director and Robert Zemeckis went over and he took Michael J. Fox aside. I didn't hear what he said. I was away from it. And he took Christopher Lloyd aside. I have no idea what he said to him, but for about like five minutes, he just took over and he just like had his hand on their neck and he was like talking to them. And he smiled and he slapped him on the neck and he walked away and they did, then they did the scene. And it was just watching. That. I was like, Oh, you know, it's not, you're not being a jerk. You're just like taking them aside and by themselves. And that's how you do it. And that's how Robert Zemeckis do it, did it. And so I know Daryl hates Forrest Gump, but <laughs> <laughs> I still think he got great performances in four Yes, Gump. So, I do too. Yes. I do too. Yeah. So, Jackson, that's how you do it, buddy. I cannot wait. I can't <laughs> wait to take somebody by the neck, as yes. you put it, and command <laughs> them, essentially. And, and it through, was gentle. Yes. And through gritted teeth, you say, yeah. that was not good. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that if you haven't watched, and it's coming out on DVD, if you, um, if you haven't watched Eli Ross' History of Horror, they interview, you know, David Arquette on that. Mm -hmm. And what he says, like, like, you know, he's like, oh, my gosh. You know, Wes Craven was my father figure. I fell in love with him. And then in my first scene, Wes Craven looks at me and said, yeah, well, that was terrible. So. <laughs> but you can hear it even in your impression of David Arquette doing an impression of Wes Craven. You can hear the compassion in his voice, right? He really cared about his actors and he just wanted them to deliver the best performance they could. Yeah, he was. A, yeah, everybody loved him. You cannot. This is the thing, you know, and this is the thing about horror movies. If you talk about Joe Dante, Toby Hooper. John Carpenter, you know, um, all these guys who have made what most people consider horrible movies, um, they have a universal, like, love by their actors. Their actors love those guys. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis talks more lovingly about John Carpenter than John Landis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, J Jamie Lee Curtis said, you know, I thought I was going to be fired. I, the first day on Halloween, it was terrible, you know, blah, blah, blah. John Carpenter called me that night and said, you were wonderful. You're fantastic. You know, you're going to be great, all that kind of stuff. And, and Jamie Lee Curtis said, and that hasn't happened since. Which John I Carpenter. What yeah, do you think that with Jamie Lee Curtis is like your like if, if you have something, especially obviously where she is now, then it's even more so because she was brand new. Yeah. But but I, I always do find that this is why I know I would be like I would be a West Craven, not by talent, but by way I would be treated because I would I feel like that's what you should do. I feel like that's yeah. how you should treat people. And I and if I had somebody like that, 
working with me on a project, especially something like a Halloween or something, you know, back in before you, before it's Halloween, um, like, why wouldn't you go out of your way to make them feel safe and feel appreciated? And I, I don't, I don't know. I just, I don't understand that. I don't either, but it happens. Um, you know, I heard it all the time when I worked in Hollywood. Um, there are certain directors I won't mention who, you know, they just, they don't do that. Um, you know, they don't go out of their way to do that. I, well, okay, I'll mention one. I'll go ahead and do it. What the <laughs> hell? It's a podcast. Um, one of my buddies back when I was in L.A. was uh, Don McGovern. We called him Stupid Don. Um, Don McGovern was the stunt double for Sylvester Stallone through most of the 80s. Um, he was his stunt double in, in uh, Cobra. So if you watch Cobra, there's a scene where Cobra rolls off of a truck onto the ground. That's Stupid Don. Um, so Stupid Don was a friend of mine. He also had a side gig where he uh, managed uh, acts who were on the road. And he co-managed Tiffany, who was managed by a buddy of mine, Brad Schmidt. And so Stupid Don, he came into the apartment that I was hanging out with one time. And Stupid Don comes in and said, oh, man, I'm in big trouble. I'm in big trouble. I'm like, Don, what's up? And he's like, this guy was like, I was on the phone. I was at a green light. And this guy was honking at me. And so I flipped him off. And he got out of the car and I punched him. (laughs) I got back in the car and I took off. And I was like, oh, okay. And so a week later... My buddy Brad Schmidt says, okay, we got to screw with stupid Don. So you're going to call him and tell him you're from LAPD. I'm like, okay. And so I call him and like the first name I come up with, I don't know where to, I said, my name is Detective Fenton Sly. (laughs) And um, we understand you were in an altercation, sir, you know, at a corner of, and I go on and on and on. And he freaks out and he comes over. And he's freaking out in front of us. And I'm like, I'm like, um, Don, did it sound like this? And I started to do the, the voice. He's like, oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we went on and on and on. But he was, you know, he was a great guy. But he told me these stories. And he was telling me these stories about doing Die Hard 2 and all this other kind of stuff where, you know, directors were really short and, and were really nasty and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But then I'd run in, I, and like I said, I'd never met Wes Craven, never met John Carpenter. I really wanted to. But when I met people who did that, it was like, they were so kind. They were so generous. They were so, you know, and that's, uh, you know, where it cuts against the grain of like the um, uh, kind of like where people try to, corner horror films it's it's not that way these guys are like really nice guys i mean joe dante or listened to his podcast a couple weeks ago he was talking about toby hooper and he said oh my gosh he said toby hooper was such a great guy and deserved better than he got yeah and it was the same way you know it's just it's sad that that's the way it happens where and and still to this day you've got guys making billions of dollars who are scumbags like michael bay um, who were, you know, he's like, you know, it came out last week that Michael Bay was like, he, first time he met, you know, um, what's her name? Megan Fox. He's yeah. like, uh, yep. he's like 15. And he's making her dance half naked in the background. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, okay. I mean, seriously? You'll never watch Transformers the same way again. No, I'll never it, watch. I'll never watch Transformers again. Period, Jackson. But no, I get your point. Was, I get your point. It was. It was same. Bad Boys. She's a background dancer in Bad Boys. Oh, that's right. and she was fifteen years old. Yeah, that's sick. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of a lot of really creepy, <laughs> creepy, creepy stories uh, that come out of there. I, I do want to point out to, to Jackson. He has to be thrilled. That by having me on the show, we we have uh, barely touched on. (laughs) (laughs) I love the conversation, but I I just think it's so amazing that like the one time you guys finally uh, give me the opportunity to be on your show, I I, I managed to make it. It'll be one of those where people go, wow, it'd be great if you guys had talked about Hills Have Eyes. (laughs) I think it also happened. I think this this kind of thing also happened when we did our Quentin Tarantino episode. Uh, with oh, Dave Becker yeah, yeah. and um, was it what? Who was Bill. who was, it was Bill. Bill. Oh yeah, Big oh, Bill was on that Bill, episode yeah. with us. We we I have think, that effect on people. <laughs> I think after I think after about forty five minutes, and by the way, it's a three hour episode over three yes, hours. Yeah. Uh, a- after about forty five minutes, we stopped talking about Quentin Tarantino and started talking about movies Quentin Tarantino liked. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I'm I'm not. I wouldn't say that I. I'm not I, used to I'm it. pretty sure Joel is is used to going off topic. Never. To. <laughs> Never. I don't know. I usually try to edit it out, but I'm sure there's it's gotten through every once in a while with me, like all but having to like yell at Daryl and Peter to like please stay on ta- stay on target. <laughs> uh, I was listening to your uh, retro movie geek Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles episode today, and uh, it starts out with about ten minutes of you uh, Peter twisting his head and and dropping the microphone and consuming it with his beard and uh <laughs> it's quite an experience well, I, like I messaged, I messaged Peter last week after the last uh episode of Retro Movie Guy I said Peter do you realize you didn't say I know once <laughs> But that's, by the way, my favorite thing in the world is when I sit there and I say something, and I'm obviously doing it for the audience, exactly. for the listener, because I don't know who's listening, or I don't know that they know that thing. And so I'll say it, and, and then there's always Peter going, I know, or he'll go, I know. I, like, I, I think you really need to open your podcast with Peter. I know you weren't listened to as a child. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm affirming you now. Yes, yes. yes. I'll, when I when I when we record not this Sunday but the the following, I will actually start the episode. I'll talk about how I got the opportunity to do this with you guys, and uh, it's come to my attention, Peter, that you need to be affirmed more. Yes, absolutely. So that being said, uh, the hills have eyes. Um, Wes Craven said his 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 commentary. He said. The first time he met Eddie Murphy, which shouldn't have happened, um, with uh, uh, the vampire from Brooklyn, but he said Eddie Murphy walked up to him and said, mm, baby fat, you're fat. Mm. That was the first thing Eddie Murphy said to Wes Craven when they met. Would it be great if, like, for whatever reason, Craven had just forgotten that he'd ever written that line or that it was in his movie? He's like, what's happening? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I, I. You know what? Full disclosure. I've never seen that entire movie. Daryl likes it. I'm guessing because you know it's technically New York based. It's Eddie Murphy. It's and it's Eddie Murphy. Murphy. Yeah. But and I know. I, I think eventually we will cover the show. And it's Angela Bassett too, isn't she in it? 
Absolutely. I feel like that's a, that's a good reason. Uh, but I, yeah, I, rem- I think I've seen probably collectively like 30 minutes of that movie. Uh, I, I don't remember being enamored. Let's just put it that way. No, it's it's not a good movie, but it's it has its moments. Uh, but it's yeah, it's not a yeah. good movie. Yeah. Now, it, it, I would ask you guys, because uh, I'm assuming I'm assuming this, of course, that uh, both of you have seen people under the stairs. Right, Jackson? Oh, absolutely. I have Jackson. Uh, I think so. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me I could have picked that? <laughs> I'm just wow. kidding. Yeah, yes. We'll do we'll do that down the road. We'll do do that down the road. So maybe if if you haven't seen it, Jackson, then everything I'm about to say will mean absolutely nothing to you. I guess where I'm going with this. Um, but Ruby as a character, there's something about her that reminds me of Alice. That Alice is is the uh AJ Langer, I think is that her name, the actress, uh, who yeah. is like the girl that's kept by the parents and, and well, the quote unquote parents, man and woman, and she ends up helping the protagonists throughout this journey through hell. And I feel like in a lot of ways, Ruby is like that here where she, I mean, obviously she's supposed to be blood relation to Papa Jupe and everybody else, but she goes out of her way to help the Carter family. Um, now have, I know you have Matt seen the Hills have eyes too, not the remake. Technically, I guess it would yeah. probably not really a re, but you know what I mean. Uh, but the, the 1985 or 84, or whenever it came out, have you, Jackson, have you had the pleasure of seeing The Hills Have Eyes 2? No, I haven't. I've seen, uh, I think, a trailer, or maybe it's just a clip show. Okay. I had no interest in it after Joe Bob called it crap, but uh, maybe I'll have to check it out. I should. It, it, the movie itself is kind of a clip show. And so, because they show lots of flashbacks to the original, it's one of those yeah. movies to fill in the gaps. Because it was probably because you said Matt, they took their money, right? They wasn't finished, right? Was that right. the yeah, yeah? And so, so ultimately, they end up doing a lot of the you know like and you go back to exactly those have eyes. But that being said, without giving too much away, Ruby is kind of one of the main characters, and and I know it's been eight years. But being that she was essentially this feral wild child who presumably had never had any contact with civilization, oh my uh, gosh. The, the fact that she uh, acclimates to our world so well is, you know, it's great. It's, it says a lot about her as a person. But uh, in this movie, I really I like that character and I and I like that she is the reason why it never quite goes there with the baby. Yeah, I mean, uh... So Papa Jupe says, kill the baby. Um, all right. So I was listening to the Craven commentary on the Blu-ray today. Um, that poor baby. Um, the mother was dosing her with sedatives. Oh, Lord. I'm not kidding you. <sighs> That's crazy. It, it, it came out later. Um, that the mother was like giving her like watered down sleeping pills. Wow. Yeah. And I, I have, I, and I'm Matt, I know from your experience, I took a, a screenwriting class in college and the woman that was teaching it had been a producer in Hollywood and she had left. And she said, one of the things that really made her decide she just was done was I can, she never said what the movie was or anything like that, but that to get a baby to cry, for instance, they would actually prick its toe yes. with yeah. a needle. I'm yeah. like, what? Like, yeah. how is a parent? <laughs> Do yeah. you? Wow. They would, 
pinch, they would prick. Yep, absolutely. And yeah, it was it was disturbing. I heard those stories from different directors and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was it was pretty disturbing. Um and they would I'm not going to say what movie this is because I don't want to get sued. It's, you know, allegedly um, there is a high profile action movie from the 80s where a baby is in a crib and going downstairs and they gave the baby a sedative. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 not that uncommon. Yeah, it's it's pretty disturbing. Yeah, that's that's pretty much shameful. I don't think there's any other word. <laughs> no, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. But uh, I mean, people are w- were willing to pimp themselves out. That's, you know, I I was delusional enough to think that when I left Ohio in 1988 as a 16-year-old and drove to Hollywood, uh, where my brother was already in ensconced in the movie business, um, that I thought, oh, this will be Nirvana. These people are smart. These people are deep, all that kind of stuff. And I went out there and discovered, uh, not so much. <laughs> yeah. So, so Jackson, I think the real lesson here is stay independent. <laughs> yes. Yes. Plan. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely stay independent. Yeah. I know that George Romero lamented a lot of how hard it was to, but let's, let's, you know, really take stock of the fact that he Maybe made, made fewer overall movies, but at least a lot of the ones he made were great. And he got to live in Pittsburgh and not over there. So there you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I got to spend the day with Tom Savini at Camp Nobi Bosco where they uh, filmed Friday 13th. And, you know, uh, Tom was on and off. Sometimes he could be a jerk. Sometimes he could be really great. It kind of depended what mood he was in. Um, but to be fair to him, he's also got, um, pretty bad arthritis, um, which is why he quit doing, you know, effects, but you know, yeah, he did talk about that. You know, when we were sitting there at lunch, he talked about, you know, uh, you know, there are guys like Quentin Tarantino that he, he spoke really highly about. He said, you know, Quentin just wants to make a great movie. He's a great guy, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he spoke about some other, and and he spoke really highly of 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 uh, George. I mean, he just went on and on and on about how great he was, George Romero. Um, he spoke really badly about some other people that I won't repeat because uh, <laughs> I don't want to be sued. Um, but it was, you know, it's all over the place, man. And you just have to, you just have to throw yourself into it. And Jackson, you're going to throw yourself into it, so. Can't wait. (laughs) By the end of this podcast, you're just like, you know, I got my phone. I'll just make movies. Maybe maybe not the industry for me. No, I'm, I'm ready. I, I am ready for the torture that is Hollywood and Hollywood people bring it on. I'm ready to go for five rounds. Well, I I admire that about you. That, that is great. Uh, speaking, by the way, speaking of things that I admire, I forgot how much I love my favorite character in this movie is straight up beast. Now I'm a dog person. So I have a, yeah, I love Beast in this movie. Poor oh Beauty, you know. God. Yeah, he's a badass. He really is. Like, and I mean, and you could say, oh, wait, like him picking up the radio, but it's like, well, what is he, like a super genius dog? But you know what? Yes, he is, okay? I had a dog that was mostly German Shepherd. Uh, my wife and I, our first dog together, uh, we called it Babe. I wanted to name him Bear. My wife named him Babe after the talking pig, but we won't go there right now. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 
he was a very smart dog as well. And while I don't know that necessarily he would have had the ability to determine, oh, this is a communication device that will really benefit my masters. Still, <laughs> I love that it happens. I love that he sneaks up on Mercury and 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 drops him uh, uh, like a hot potato. I love the the attack on Pluto. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I was. I am, and I'm very happy that in the end that, I mean, you kind of get both. Was it, uh, was it, was it, uh, Kyle that made the comment one time on HMP about the, uh, you know, it's a horror movie. If the kid or an animal dies, a dog dies or whatever. So you get that Hills have eyes, but then you get the other one. Uh, I I do want to ask though, how indicative it is it of the time that when they, they want to give the little bit of a foreshadowing of how, you know, beast sneaks up on his kill you know he's yeah. he, he never knows doesn't Arthur, work. yeah and and, he, and what is it that they say like oh you remember that poor poodle it's like, <laughs> what <laughs> like why is that a funny story they act like it's like well it's oh beast balled <laughs> a little animal and killed it i <laughs> know uh, yeah it doesn't make any sense but it's oh man, it, it doesn't make any sense that Pluto shows back up in part two when Beast yeah. has ripped his neck out in part one. But uh, uh, so be it. It's yeah, I mean, but Jackson, you've had that dog. Um, I mean, uh, when Jackson was very little, we adopted a dog which he named Duke, not named after the evil basketball team, but after you know somebody else. But uh, yes, oh, and. And I remember one night, do you remember this when you were walking Duke? Uh, with the pit bull? Yes, and a pit bull yeah. charged him, and Duke, who was part um, Rottweiler, jumped on top of the pit bull. Who, it was a pit bull for a local drug dealer who was down our street. Mm-hmm. And Duke, uh, Jackson's dog, jumped up, ripped its ear off. Wow. And turned around and looked at Jackson like, okay, let's keep walking. Yep. <laughs> Job then, well done. And then years later, you'll be sitting around with your family camping, Jackson, and you'll you oh you I had this dog, and you'll tell it as like a fun story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll make the comment. Yeah, Dad was so mad he had to pay vet bills for a for a pit bull with a ripped off ear. Oh, oh, oh. Well, I was going to ask you. So it was named after uh, the character from GI Joe, not uh, Duke of New York. Yeah, also, GI Joe from Escape from New York. Okay, all right. Just yeah, yeah. he it's named after GI Joe. Yeah. Yeah. I would rather it have been John Wayne, but anyway, it was as long as it's not the world's most evil basketball team, I'm fine. So anyway, um, yeah, that's and you have Duke to this day, don't you, buddy? Sure do. He is like 12 now and he can still jump up on my bed. It's crazy. He's very that's agile. That's great. Part German Shepherd, part Rottweiler. That thing is. Yeah, that thing is deadly, but he loves you. So. All right. What else do we want to talk about this movie? I, I I did want to mention one thing, and then I, I feel like I've completely over overridden you guys, and I apologize for that. No, no, no. I I normally would say okay, I will always prefer an original to the remake, and that is definitely the case here, except for one thing. I like better in the remake how they end up with a car wreck than how they end up mm-hmm. in this. Like I always forget about it until I watch it that. They like, oh, this is where they yeah. apparently do bombing runs. So let's drive my family through this area. And then, a, and, a, and for whatever reason, I don't know why those jets would be flying so low over no. top of their cars that right. and they would have had to have seen the car, right? I mean, 
I don't know. It's weird. Like the whole reason why that happens, I've always felt like, okay, I get you had to get him to crash for the rest of this movie to happen, but it feels so forced. Yeah, it does. I, I, I agree. And, and the, the map flying into Bob's face and all that kind of stuff, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work. I agree. The remake is a lot better on that. Have you, you haven't seen the remake though. Have you Jackson? No, I haven't. How did they wind up in the desert? Oh, uh, you want me to tell you? Yeah, sure. Okay, okay. So basically, you get the old man running the gas station, but and, and the and the whole pr- the conceit of the new one is they this is like a nuclear bombing range, and these are like real like this is like wrong turn mutants. These are not like the hill people of mm-hmm. the seventy seven version. And the uh, speaking of Die Hard two, I'm pretty sure it was the guy who played the custodian uh, with uh, McLean uh, in Die Hard yeah. two. And so he's the gas station attendant and he essentially sends that family down a shortcut because he's got the, I don't even think he was necessarily related to them in the remake. I don't think it's like the father of Papa Jupe or anything like that. Um, or maybe it is, but they don't really go into it as much. Mm-hmm. And, and he sends them down to this area and it's essentially, he's got an agreement with the family. They bring him this stuff and it's very clear cut that he sends them victims. So they kill them, they eat them, they bring him right. whatever they get. And so that's, they, like, he sends them that way. And then there's like a booby trap and that it's, so it's kind of like, it makes sense. You're, you're, okay. Yeah. I totally get what this happened. Yeah. 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 I get that. I, I actually like the remake. I, I don't like it as much as the original, but I, I do like the remake, especially because Ted Levine is in it, which yes. who I think is amazing. Yeah. It puts the lotion in the basket. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, yeah, it, exactly. it, it's good. Like, I actually I was shocked. Like, I, I didn't think I would hate it, but uh, it's. It's funny because I had just watched the original when I watched it, and it is more brutal. Like it is, it's. I mean, it's it's uh, Alex Aja. So, um, but you know, as much as I loved Crawl, and I finally saw High Tension, I hadn't seen that, but I saw that about a, maybe a year or so ago. Um, so he's definitely known. He does brutal pretty Absolutely. well. Yeah, uh, so yeah. it's definitely more brutal. And I could definitely say I don't. I'm gonna say I'd never watch it again. Whereas the original, I know I'll watch many times more i i just i don't know i think i feel like okay i saw the remake it was good i definitely think you should see it jackson uh, I, I would be interested to hear what your uh your take is on it cool yeah you need to watch it i've got it on dvd so i can give it to you so all right so um folks joe where can they catch up with you online well, they could check out uh, Retro Movie Geek with Peter and Daryl. Uh, so Terror on the Tube with uh, Peter and uh, the horror unicorn, Allison, is on that as well. <laughs> and, uh, of course, Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so check all that good stuff out. I, I don't know when this will drop, but in October, of course, we're doing Spooky Flicks Fest. Uh, this year, the theme is werewolves, and that is because... Oh, nice. My uh, good friend Hammond, Hammond Chamberlain, who does uh, Beyond the Playlist, a podcast he does, he and I had done a podcast a few years back called uh, Booth at the End. There was a show on Hulu called Booth at the End, which we loved. It was like two seasons. They were like, each episode was like 10 minutes long, but it was really good. And so we did this show. It was standalone, you know, 20 episodes, whatever it ended up being, 15 episodes. Done. Well, we talked about a show that we both loved when we were kids called Werewolf. That was one of those early Fox uh, network TV shows. And cause I, I always thought it was one of the best looking worlds ever. Uh, Rick Baker, I think had done the original design on yep. it. Greg Canham did a lot of the effects. 
Um, it, you know, so it, it's great. And it had Chuck Connors as, as the bad guy. Oh yeah. And, and so we decided to do a podcast series dedicated to that show. So it's gonna be like 16 episodes. We cover, they were like 20 something minutes each of the uh, werewolf episodes. So we cover like two episodes per podcast episode. And so the game plan is for spooky flux fest is we're going to release that whole series in October and then have our, you know, usual like retro movie geek spooky flicks fest, but it's all going to be werewolf theme. That's the game plan. That's awesome. I cannot wait. I'm geeking out right now. Yeah. Yeah. So well, that uh, was, um, Frank Lupo was yes. behind werewolf. Yep. He had done the original Battlestar Galactica as well. Oh, so I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 It's it's one of those shows that the only way we could watch it was like these really crappy bootlegs because the, I I heard like Scream Factory I think was going to put out a set. there is a yeah there's a Blu-ray set coming out in October yeah yes yeah, so, uh, here's the catch though and, and I'll break the news here because I'm going to have to record something because we we were like we're almost done we've recorded almost all the episodes and then all of a sudden the news come we, the, all these episodes were lamenting oh there's no version other than the YouTube version to watch and then all of a sudden it's like oh it's coming out it's like are, and it's coming out in October I'm like are you kidding me with this but. There is a catch. There is a catch. I contacted them. They are a French company, and they yeah. said the version is only going to be PAL, which makes me think it's not Blu-ray. It's got to be just uh, a DVD. Now, I'm such a dork. I'm going to buy it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't care. I will too, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, unfortunately, they said because of licensing, they could not make it available in the U.S. yet. And uh, yeah. I always heard the story goes it had to do with music rights, that there was a couple scenes where they could right. not find I the original. I heard that, too, yeah. Yeah, they couldn't find the original dialogue or whatever, the the, the tracks. And so uh, they only had the mixed-down version, and they couldn't get the licensing rights. Well, there we are. So that's that's the game plan yeah. for October. I remember watching that at... I was living in L.A. at the time, and I had a bunch of buddies who would come over. We would watch two shows every week. We would watch Twin Peaks and Werewolf. Awesome. And I remember going to my boss when David Lynch um, asked for a meeting with my bosses, uh, Jerry Weber and Mike Stoller. And I tried to explain to them. Neither one of them knew what Twin Peaks was. And I explained to Jerry Lieber, who was the main lyricist, he wrote Jailhouse Rock, Hound Dog, uh, Yakety Yak, Stand By Me, you know, all those songs. And I was talking to Jerry Lieber and I said, well, you know, he's he's got this show called Twin Peaks and, you know, it's about a murder. And he looked at me, he said, it's about a murder. I said, yeah. He goes, oh, I heard Twin Peaks. I just thought it was about a girl with big tits. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Uh, oh, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and full, full disclosure, full disclosure, I've never watched Twin Peaks. Oh, you have Ooh. to watch Twin Peaks. Never watched it. I, I, have, I, I know you I have, have to watch the first season. Now, the where David Lynch rejuvenated it here with Showtime, yeah, don't watch that. Okay. But the first season and a half is amazing. Yeah. Although what's messed up is I think I have seen the Fire Walk With Me movie. <laughs> I think I've seen that. I think I saw that when it came out. I don't well, know. Well, listen to Retro Movie Geek enough to know, okay, Match and Amick is really a prime player in it. Okay. Okay. 10-4. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and Sherilyn Finn, so. Gotcha. Awesome. Yeah, yeah there you go, so. All right, so that's what we have for now. Jackson, what do you got online, buddy? 
Uh, well, on Twitter, you can find me at Kane underscore Hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero 12. On Letterboxd, of course, I'm at Kane Hero. I'll be putting out a full review. I have got like like 300 pages of notes. No, not quite that much. I've got lots and lots of notes that I'm going to be putting into a uh, Hills Have Eyes review because I did, in fact, actually watch this movie three times in the last month. You know, I uh, watched it with the Joe Bob coverage. That's two and a half hours of Joe Bob coverage. Right. Then realized I had forgotten to take notes halfway through, so I had to watch it again. Uh, so that was three times this month. So I'll be putting out a review there. You can catch it on Letterboxd. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel, which is always floating around. Don't do movie reviews on there, but I actually make a little video. So if you want to go check that out, uh, that's always available. Absolutely. So, all right. We are coming up on Dario Argento's um, 80th birthday. So we're going to kick off a Dario Argento tribute on Father and Son Watch Horror Movies, which we will kick off with Cat of Nine Tales, which is on Shudder. So you can check that out before we review it. Um, next, we want to thank our Patreon supporters. Um, absolutely, we it's been amazing. You guys have been incredible. You're getting ready to support Jackson to go through film school, and we really appreciate that. So... That's what we have. So Dario Gento coming up with Cat of Nine Tails, um, Deep Red, Suspiria, all that kind of stuff, all, all on Shutter. Jackson, you want to add anything to that? Uh, I'm looking for. I'd see foreign horror is kind of a, a blind spot in my uh, my movie watching experience i have watched argento movies and bava movies and obviously we watch fulci movies together yeah. for the podcast um but other than the big uh like classic releases from argento i'm not really familiar with his filmography oh. especially Cat, Cat of nine tails i see it's on tubi but i have never seen it before oh. uh, so i'll be going in on it with fresh eyes and i'll be giving you first impressions so i'm looking forward to that oh carl malden yeah, some great stuff. So we're going to have a lot of fun over the next couple of weeks. So we appreciate all of you. And um, so say goodbye to the good people, buddy. Goodbye. And remember not to swerve when there's a rabbit in the road, because when you're out in the desert, it's you or them and their reign of terror has gone on for far too long. <laughs> That's right. All right, folks. So remember that the family that watches horror movies together slays together. See you next time.